Well, good morning. Good to be here today. A bit of a thought-provoking just uh, idea to kick us off this morning as well. Why don't you just sort of turn to someone next to you. Just smile. Just, just smile. That's all you need to do this morning. Just smile just so they know that you're there. And it's good to be together. I discovered something this morning that was really different for me. I discovered that you can be an IT person who works in accounting and auditing and have a personality. Didn't Sarah have a personality? She brought a personality with her this morning. Sarah, thank you for coming and doing that. That's really good. That's really good. Okay, I've been away for five weeks, and uh, that means Bron's been away for five weeks too, and the place has been ticking along smoothly. I know that it's been sunny weather for you. It's been really warm, and you've just been enjoying the time here in Melbourne in our absence. In fact, uh, I said to people before I went away, I said, I'm going away, and they said, where are you going? And I said, you don't want to know. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 we really do want to know. Tell us, where are you going? And I said, you don't want to know. And they said, no, 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 I really do want to know where you're going. And this is the gig. When I told them, they said, we hate you. <laughs> we, we don't want to know where you're going or where you went. So just for the chance right here that I'm going to put some people out of joint, can I just give you the brief highlights reel? Just a very brief highlights reel. So it started off here in a place like this. <laughs> I know, you hate me. <laughs> um, and so this is in Ia on Santorini, so in Greece for a week, right? And this was, we woke up to this one morning, you could stretch your arms and there was the Aegean right in front of you. How awesome was that? The funny thing though, the funny thing is that you could stretch your hands like this and look up literally just there. And, and there are there are women who have come from all around the world to wear these halter neck dresses in satin or silk that have like trains of like four or five meters in bright red or bright orange or bright green, right? And they're getting photographed right there <laughs> in the morning times. You have to be really careful of that. So that was, that was week one, really hard, really hard. Between 30 and 40 degrees every day, sorry, just saying it was really hard. And then, and then of course, we went to London to see the Queen. <laughs> No, he didn't. Um, Bronze highlight reel was coming along and seeing the hologram of ABBA. And I've got to say, in that room, there were a lot of mums and their younger daughters. Mums around the age of 50 and their younger daughters taking them to have an awesome experience together. So that was the ABBA hologram time. In fact, Ron made some friends when she was there. She said, I couldn't bring my own boots, so could I take a photo of you and yours? And, and so we were in the after party because where we were staying was right across the road from the Abba Stadium. And uh, that was our experience there too. Then, sorry, then the next week we went to the UK and we walked in the Lake District. Not the Lakes District, as I've been told by some British people. The Lake District. And so that was 130 kilometers of walking from town to town to town to town. So we just saw sheep and sheep. <laughs> Lots of fun. Very relaxing in the Lake District. And uh, then after that, oh, I know for those, any golfers in the room here? Had tickets. Thank you, Mark Butcher from here. Bron and I sat on the 17th, that is the roadside hole, for the entire day. And it was all unfolding before us as Cam Smith, he did his putt and everything like that. And other people missed theirs. Sorry, Ash, I know. And then Mark texted me from here and he said, go and say hi to Cam Smith, I know you can. So that's the closest I got to him as we all flooded onto the old course at the very, very end. So do you hate me even more now for those golfers out here and amongst you? I know, I know. I was there though, so sorry for you. <laughs> No, really. Oh, and then after that, 
Ah, where else would you go but Salzburg, right? To see the sound of music. This was my highlight, my personal highlight, was going on the tour of the sound of music. It really was. There was a, a Sydney guy who was taking the tour. He'd been there for 30 years. Um, and then during that time, we had to stay in this place. I'm sorry, but if you ever want to go to Salzburg, this is the place to be. But most of all, more than anything else, over the, the last five weeks, uh, it's just been really nice to hang out with this lady. So that's where we were over that time. Now, do you hate me even more? <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I want to start this morning. If you have your Bible with you, maybe just turn to Mark chapter 8, or if you want it on your iOS device. I want to start a new series today called Posturing. How does someone who's a Jesus follower posture themselves in a conflicted and increasingly complex world around about? And what I want to talk about this morning is an opportunity to lean into Jesus and begin a six-week conversation about how do Jesus followers posture themselves in this complex and complicated world in which we have inhabit? Is anyone finding that the world's got a little bit more complicated, a little bit more conflicted, a little bit more complex over the last couple of years? I have. And so it's a really important conversation to have. And I want to start off by looking at these words as we're talking about aligning to Jesus in a conflicted world. Mark chapter 8, 34, this is what it says. And he, that's Jesus, called to the crowd to him with his disciples. This is following Peter, his, his, um, one of his point disciples who said, you are the son of God, you are the Messiah, you are who you are. And uh, then Jesus says, well, that, that person, that is, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise to new life. And, uh, and Peter says to him, you will not do that. And, and Jesus rebukes him, and then he gathers the crowds. And he says with his disciples, if, if any one of you want to come the way I'm going, he said, you must say no to your own selves, pick up your cross and follow me. For a Jewish person living in occupied Rome to say those words, pick up your cross, had an added texture, or had an added strain, had an added complexity to it because uh, crucifixion was used as an instrument of terror to keep the peace amongst the nations. He goes on and he says this, yes. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life because of me and the message, you'll save it. Jesus said, some people will tell you you're throwing your life, your, your life away if you follow me. But I, I beg to differ. I want to tell you that if you find the words that I'm saying appealing, if, if you hear and something resonate of truth about them, I want you to know if you attach yourself to me and follow me, you will find life. You won't lose it. And then he goes on and he says this, after all, what use is it to win the whole world in one context by force, but in a broader context? You can get the whole world and lose your life. What can you give in exchange for your life? And then he goes on and says these confronting words. If you are ashamed of me and my words in this cheating, this is how he, he spoke of his generation. And sinning generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Why do I start with this when I talk about posture? It's because in the words of Jesus here, they carry great conviction. And they remind me of some things. That is, they remind me I'm not following a proposition, I'm following a person. And his name's Jesus. Secondly, that it's his life and words that have meaning and power and life. And thirdly, he's the one who's going to bring those things to pass. In other words, I'm not the rescuer. Thank goodness for that. It's going to say, thank God for that. I'm not the rescuer. 
But you're not the rescuers of the world. And no politicians are the rescuers of the world. Certainly sport and AFL football is not the rescuer of the world. So as a person, his name is Jesus, is the saviour and the rescuer of the world. Why is this posture thing important, aligning ourselves? Well, it started for me, I was reminded about this when I was on this boat, sailing across the Aegean, I know, just hate on me a little bit more, <laughs> just a few weeks ago. You see, on this boat, it was filled with a whole bunch of young people, but there were some older people too. But there were some uh, two guys by themselves uh, in their 40s, 50s. So at one stage there, we gravitated to, uh, uh, to one another in the, what's the back of the boat called? The, the bow or the stern? Stern, thank you very much. We gathered together in our little cohort of older people in the stern. And uh, invariably, we turned to one another and said, you know, the, the conversation, well, what do you do? What are you doing here? And there was one guy from the UK, and this is what he said. He said, during COVID, it got so bad and so hard that by the end of it, just a few months ago, I went to my GP and I had one of those health checkups. <laughs> he said, the health checkup I did revealed that I had a blood pressure that was 160 plus. He said, so at that moment, after everything that's been happening over the past number of years, he said, I called time. And he said, I could do that in the kind of business that I'd been involved in. So I basically went to my employer and I said, I quit. <laughs> I need to change some things in my life. I've got a blood pressure of 160 plus. So he said, that's what I'm doing here. So I said, how long are you doing this here for? And he said, 40 to 50 days in the Greek islands. I said, then what are you doing? He said, I don't know. <laughs> but I had to call time out. Then the other guy, who we, we turned to him, and he was like the, not the Fabio, but he was kind of quite like that. He was the upwardly mobile, tan, successful looking guy with the glasses and everything. And he said, well, I'm actually in my 40s, <laughs> not us 50s. And uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, like, he said I'm, like, I'm a Greek national. I'm working in Switzerland really hard. I know to work in Switzerland. And he said, uh, what am I doing here? He said, I've just come from a yoga retreat. I think there was a relational breakup. And uh, he said, I've spent the last week kind of resetting myself. Wow. So how was that for you? I said, what did you learn? He said, the first thing I learned is that I've been chasing the money and the success. And he said, it's not in the money and the success. That's not what this whole thing's about. Interesting. And he said, what else did you learn about yourself? He said, I learned I needed to just trust myself a little bit more. How interesting. I'm having this conversation on the boat. The boat. <laughs> and then invariably, what happens? What do you do? What do you do? Why are you here? Why are you here? What do you do and why are you here? <laughs> oh, I knew that was coming. And you know, for the first time in a long while, I flinched. I flinched because I didn't know their view of, of me. And I don't often do that. I like to think I'm proud of Jesus. I'm proud of Jesus' followers. I want everyone to be proud of Jesus. Right? Awesome, man. But I flinched. And so for weeks after that, I was starting to think, Why? And in my thoughts, a whole bunch of things crashed in. Number one, I thought, how do they view me, particularly in light of all the sexual scandals that have been plaguing churches and institutions for decades now? It just There's another one that comes out, another one. Or, 
high-profile leaders who call themselves Jesus followers who have had spectacular falls, crashing down, back-of-house stuff unraveling that people find out about. That's why I think I flinched. I also think I flinched because there's a part of a Christian movement we might call the radical right that have aligned themselves with political parties and they somehow think that they're doing God's work through that and they're getting loud, have you noticed? In some segments of the world. So I think in that caustic environment, I wonder, how do they view me? Am I that? And so I think that's why I flinched. And then thirdly, I think I flinched because of the downward pressure of materialism is so palpable and powerful right now in our culture that we live in such a flat world when it comes to spirituality. When someone comes out and says, I'm a person of faith, it almost seems a bit obtuse. So I think for all of those reasons, I kind of flinched in that moment. And then I said, actually, I'm a skydiver. I jump out of airplanes for a job. <laughs> actually, I didn't. They said, really? I said, no, no, I'm a minister of a church. And then I'm ne I never know if it's good news when someone looks at you and goes, I would never have picked that in a million years. Is that good news or bad news after sort of observing me for the, the duration of the, the boat trip so far? Which gets me thinking, this whole idea about posture is so critical, important, about how a Jesus follower learns to navigate and posture themselves in the world. The first thing I want to say is that when you observe the life of Jesus, he seemed to be able to be someone who hung out as what we'd call with people in the margins, comfortably. Look at Mark chapter 2, it describes... Conversation that Jesus had with the tax collector. said, as Jesus went along, the, he saw Levi, the son of Ophias, sitting at the toll booth. The toll booth was collected as a way of another one of the Roman tax collecting opportunities. And, and Jesus said to this man in the toll booth, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Wow. He heard a call. He got up and just followed Jesus. Didn't ask, where are you going? What are you doing? He just followed and then it goes on and it says this. That's how Jesus came to be sitting at home with lots of tax collectors and sinners. There they were, plenty of them, sitting with Jesus and his disciples because they'd become his followers. Now I pause here for a moment because I want to make the point is that if you hung out with Jesus for long enough, you would realize pretty quickly <laughs> that he felt very, very comfortable with people who kind of wouldn't, you wouldn't have picked to align themselves with him. Yep. In fact, if you had have paused in that moment and asked Jesus, Jesus, do you agree with all of the lifestyles and the way of viewing the world and even the political persuasions of the people that you're hanging out with? I'm pretty confident that he would have on the side said, no. But he didn't seem to have... Like a discomfort with that. He seemed to actually gravitate towards that kind of space. And in fact, so much so that it was observed that there were lots of tax collectors. People who were probably known for thieving and colluding and making a buck off the back of their own countrymen for the Romans. And, and not just that, but there were plenty of them. And Jesus seemed to feel that he was actually, well... If you had have asked him, I reckon you would have said that he was comfortable with them. And strangely enough, 
they were comfortable with him. And I reckon to have that kind of dynamic, you have to have adopted a certain posture in the world, right? Jesus was comfortable in the margins. The challenge, though, I think for Jesus' followers in our context is that somehow we can so easily disconnect from the margins, however you might want to define that. In fact, there, there Bron and I were. We were in St. Stephen's Cathedral in, I'm sorry, Vienna. <laughs> and what you notice about these cathedrals is that they were built as houses of worship for God and they were positioned in the center of towns. Because there was a time and space in which the church, if you like, inhabited the middle, the center of communities and cultures. In fact, they also had a center in the political dynamic, the moral fibers of a community, everything centered around it. If you go to these places in Europe, that's what you discover and find, that they're in the center. But strangely enough, or maybe not so strangely, even though they occupy the center geographically, they are no longer in the center. Have you noticed? I think in part this is because the first thing we need to remind ourselves, if you're a Jesus follower here, is that for the first 300 years following Jesus, the followers of Jesus inhabited the margins until a fateful day, or maybe not, and when Constantine declared that Christianity was the state religion in the early 4th century, and it changed everything. It lined Jesus with politics and with power, and they became the center for 1,700 years. And I think what the church right now is renegotiating is... How do we actually live now that we're inhabiting ourselves in the margins because we no longer hold that position of the middle? One of the reflex reactions of some Jesus followers is we must reclaim the middle. And I want to say back as far as posturing in the world, I'd say you don't have to reclaim the middle. Why? Because what we've discovered over time is that across any particular people group, Power plus lack of accountability plus time equals corruption. It's true of our political systems. It's true of our church institutions. It's true of any club or organization. It's true of your local footy club. Yeah? And so one of the things I think that Jesus followers are wrestling with is, what do we do now that we're no longer in the middle? I'd say, you don't have to rush back to the middle. And the second thing I'd say is, the followers of Jesus occupying the middle for so long have got really used to telling people how they should live. <laughs> what I would want to invite us to do is stop telling and actually, if you like, become a little bit quieter on some things and a bit louder on other things. And the one thing that keeps coming through, if you read and follow Jesus and you read the Bible enough, the one thing that keeps coming through, the thing that Jesus' followers should be really loud about is loud about those who are poor. Loud about those who are the widows and the orphans and the vulnerable. That's what Jesus' followers should always be really, really loud about. And so the first thing I want to say is I wonder if Jesus' followers need to, to learn to be comfortable in the margins again. Because in the margins you discover, <laughs> in the margins you discover that Jesus is actually there himself. Second thing I want to say is when you look at the life of Jesus, you have to learn to inhabit the margins without 
judgment. I think Jesus somehow had a way of navigating this spectacularly well. (laughs) There's another situation in Luke chapter 7. It describes Jesus' response to people who got most decidedly uncomfortable with him. They got uncomfortable with him because of the seeming comfort he found in occupying the margins. In fact, some of the religious Pharisees said, why does Jesus hang out with tax collectors and, 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 and the, the, the people beyond the margins that would have included uh, sex workers who would have sold their body for money and, and all kinds of other impoverished people around the edges? And Jesus replies to him, he says, you, know, you say about John, my cousin, John the Baptist, he's come neither eating or drinking, he's living the ascetic life, and you say he has a demon. <laughs> he says, but the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a heavy drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> now, I don't want any of you this morning to go to your parents if you're younger and said, Troy told us that we should get drunk, right? And eat lots and lots of food, because that's what they said Jesus was like. No. But you need to hear, he hung around with the margins so much that he enjoyed having a party with them, and he shared food, and and he was hospitable. And in fact, he seemed to not only be comfortable with that, but somehow they seemed comfortable with him, that they didn't feel judged. You know, it's spectacularly easy to be able to judge people. Have you noticed that? Over the last 1,700 years, I think because Jesus' followers have occupied, in some sense, the the middle, the center, they've become really good at being able to try and fix people. (laughs) Have you ever tried to fix someone? Yeah. I once tried to fix my wife, right? And I prayed about that, and I said, God, when I was younger, I know, silly, foolish me. I said, I'm having some troubles. And I heard God whisper back to me, just not not a voice or anything like that, how about let's start with you? And then we can attend to someone else. I find it's hard enough to fix me. And so one of the things I think that Jesus' folk need to do is actually stop trying to fix people. And start to inhabit the world that Jesus inhabited without judgment. Because what I discover is that you can actually discover so much about people if you stop trying to fix them. One of the curious things I find is that this idea of democracy tricks us. Sometimes we can think that we can fix the world through the ballot box. And that's what some Christians have done in aligning themselves with certain political parties. We can bring God's kingdom on earth through the ballot box. No, no. No, you actually just vote in a whole bunch of other broken people and they get to run the world for a while. You can't bring the kingdom of heaven through coercion. The Pharisees tried to do that. They really believed, they weren't trying to earn their way to God, they just really believed that if you kept the Torah the way in which they actually defined Torah, and you did it perfectly for long enough, that God would come, kind of like a mechanism of kind of a leather. If I can pull it, if we can get people to be these perfect kind of people for long enough, live out and obey Torah, God and his kingdom will come. Which is one of the challenges sometimes with any revival or prayer movements, is that we think that we can make it happen. You don't do it through coercion. The third thing is that I discover 
is you most definitely don't do it through violence. Because that's the antithesis of what Jesus is on about. So I wonder if, if Jesus was posturing himself here today, he'd want to whisper and say, I want, you to learn, I want you to learn what it means to inhabit the margins and not have to try and reclaim. I want you to learn what it is to inhabit the margins without judgment. Because what you might discover is that along the way, you might realize that I actually inhabit the margins. I inhabit it. And one of the reasons that would prevent a lot of people from doing that, and, and Jesus copped a lot of flack because of his, his, his comfortableness, it seemed, with people who didn't have the same opinions as him, is that they believed that just his mere presence in them compromised him. That is so not true. If that was the case, Jesus would have been compromised a hundred times over. But being present and available in other people's lives, it don't hold the same ideas and thoughts of you. It doesn't compromise you at all. In fact, it might be the very place that you're invited to inhabit because you discover that Jesus is in those places. And if you stop trying to fix people and judge people and just listen a little bit more, I discover all kinds of conversations open up. I realize this just on my trip again, believe it or not. I won't show you another photo. <laughs> but I was fishing on a lock. Yeah, I hate to say it was one of my bucket things. I just like saying the word lock. Could you, you might just lock. I was fishing on a lock. And I organized this uh, guide to take me out on the boat. And uh, at the beginning of the day, jumped in the boat and we just do the quick exchange, you know, who are you, what do you do? He said, I've just got a new kid. I said, mate, I am traveling for the first time without kids. Like, and, and so now I can actually go on a holiday, and Bron and I were like, without kids, how good was that, Bron? Was that good? Without kids. We love our kids, but without kids, right? And I said, mate, you've... and he said, yeah, and actually, this is just my second time around. And I went, man, you're doing this again? It was hard enough the first time, right? And he goes, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. So we went out and for eight hours we fished. Nothing. Not a bite, not a fish, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The story of my life when it comes to nothing fishing. And then we get talking in the nothingness. And uh, where, where did you meet your wife? Yeah, so I met her at a group, which is always kind of a group. Okay, you met her at a group. That's great. And then he says, what do you do? Oh, here it is again. What do I do? Um, I jump out of um, uh, airplanes for a little, no. And I say, I'm a minister of a church. He goes, oh, that's interesting, because my wife, she prays. I go, really? He goes, she goes, she prays all the time. In fact, she's got this group in the States. She's up in the nighttime. In the middle of the night, she's texting people back and forth, praying. I went, Wow. That's, that's amazing. What kind of group? What kind of group? What kind of group? I thought, what kind of group? And then he went on to say, yeah, actually, before I met her, my life took a nosedive. Kind of the, the fallout of the other relationship. And, and it went really bad. Like after eight hours sitting with someone in a boat, we just start to open up, right? And he said, it went really, really bad. And I began to drink, and I began to drink, and I began to drink. And it got really messy. And he described some things that were messy. It was messy. Hmm? And I said, what turned it around? He said, well, there was this group. 
Ah, I know the group. I've heard of that group. I said, yeah, that group, uh, actually, uh, uh, sometimes in our lives, you realize for change, you need something higher and bigger than yourself to actually make that change. You can't do it yourself. I said, that's what I discovered with God in my life, to actually be able to love other people and see them differently. I found that that's been really transformative for me. And I discovered that it's really hard to love people unless you've experienced love yourself. And he said back to me, I, I don't get that other stuff you're talking about, the religious stuff. <laughs> but he said, I get the love stuff. He said, I get the love stuff like this, is because before I, I met my wife, I hadn't really experienced it, but I met her at this group. And for the first time in my life, I felt loved. And I, I completely get that because now I, I'm giving it. It's changing me. I'm rebuilding relationships with my kids. I'm re rebuilding relationships with my dad. I'm re getting my life back together again. And it's because I've experienced the tra powerful, transformative power of just, just love from someone else unconditionally. How good's that? When we parted ways, we waved goodbye, slat and caught a fish. <laughs> I said, would you say hello to your wife for me from a minister from Melbourne? He said, sure. You see, what I discovered is that Jesus is in the margins. And all he does is invite you to carry the hope you have into those places. There's one other place it says in the Bible, in 1 Peter. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded. He's talking to Jesus' followers. Be sympathetic and loving to one another. This is really important. And then he says this word, tender-hearted. That's what he says that. He says, I want you to practice being tender-hearted to each other so that you might get into the practice of being tender-hearted everywhere. So this kind of, this space is here for a like practice for being tender-hearted, yeah? So you can practice on each other and humble. And then he says this, sanctify, that means to sanctify the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. That is, when you wake up in the morning, just remind yourself, Jesus, you're the boss and I'm following you. You're the boss, I'm following you. And always be ready to make a reply to anyone who asks you to explain the hope that is in you. That's it. What's the hope I carry? And then he goes on and says this, do it though with gentleness and respect. Hold on to a good conscience so that when people in that context revile your good behavior in the Messiah, they might be ashamed, not because you're pouring it on them, but because they actually see what, who you are and what you're trying to do. They might reflect upon that. You see, what I discover that Jesus is in the margins and he invites us into those spaces, but to inhabit them well, we're going to need a new posture, right? Come on up, man. That'd be great. So a question I want to ask you this morning as we finish our time, as we start off this next six weeks, did it just get heavy or am I just feeling it a little bit here? We're just listening in. So I don't want it to be heavy, but I want it to be valued. This is important, right? How do we inhabit a complicated, conflicted world? How do we do that? I said to the staff on Monday, I said, whenever I go away, when I have some time, I know this is just quirky me, quirky Troy. Sometimes I get a piece of paper and I go, if someone asked me while I was away, <laughs> why are you that religious man? What would you say? So I get out pen and paper and I just have a go. What would I say? 
to the guy in the boat. Boats. Oh, there's a theme. You spend more time in boats. And this is what I put down. What do I say to someone, maybe you're here this morning, you're just checking out God, you're not quite sure. Maybe I'd say something like this. I want you to know, there's a God and we are his making. And he invites us to find life in him. I mean, you can go hunting for it everywhere. I've spoken to guys who have hunted for it everywhere and they tell me, it's not in the dollars and it's not in the success. There's more. And then I'd say, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've, been, you've done or has been done to you, you matter to him. You're of infinite worth, but we're also in need of great repair, if I'm honest. And through his son Jesus, he's irrevocably broken into the kingdoms of this world and has defeated their powers, the power of sin and death and devil himself. And he's this world's true Lord and King. I know it sounds strange. And his death, he paid a price that you and I could not pay. And in his new life and resurrection, he demonstrates that he has overcome all things. I believe that. And now he's calling all people to do an about turn and place their confident trust in him. Find life in him that reaches into eternities. If you do, he'll welcome you home as no, you never left. Put a ring on your hand, sandals on your feet, jacket around you, he'll celebrate you. You wash you clean, welcome you home, put you into his service forever. And if you don't, well, that's your decision. But he still bids you come. And his arms are open wide. So let me ask you this morning, what might you say? And what if the things that you've seen about Jesus today is he's speaking to you about, about your posture? something he wants you to recalibrate is there something he wants you to check maybe in the quiet here we might just pause I might pray Jesus we we want to know what it means to posture ourselves in a world that's increasingly complex would you teach us and Father God here in this place you speak to us whatever it is that we're hearing you whisper in us today would you give us the courage now to act on it God we can't do this ourselves so we ask that you might fill us with your spirit that we might practice amongst one another what it means to be tender hearted loving humble so that will overflow. Maybe you're here this morning and you're sensing strongly God's Spirit speaking to you. I would encourage you. Act on that. Act on that. 